From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you the remedy for small businesses, Metro's Big Short, and Smackers, Dosh, and Doe. What do you call money? Welcome to episode 323 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Adam Davids. How are you, Adam? I'm very well. I think this is our first Fintech Insider news show together. I know, we've done a couple of insights to we have. together. This is quite the moment. It's, we'll bond over it later. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good idea. Not, not on air, but after. <laughs> um, as always, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests who just happened this week to be all ladies. Um, we have making her new show debut, Karen Kerrigan, who is the COO of Cedars. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you very much. Bit like a wave now that I know I'm on camera as well. Um, so I'm just going to use my hands a little bit. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Feel free to gesticulate as you wish. Um, and also making welcome returns, we have Romy Savova, CEO and founder of Pension B, and Iona Bain, blogger at Young Money, as well as industry commentator, author, and speaker. How are you both? Good. Doing well. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. So let's get started. So the first story today is remedies for small businesses. So this story came from Reuters, that was pretty much everywhere. Uh, Nationwide Investec and Co-op Bank got the cash to build out propositions for small businesses from the BCR Remedies Fund, Pool B. So between them, they got a total of £80 million. The allocations were £50 million to Nationwide and £15 million to both Investec and Co-op Bank. Um, so Pool B is the pool that is awarded to, um, forgive me, this is the official language, but we'll get into it in a minute, facilitate the modernization of existing business current account offerings or the development of new business account business current accounts or ancillary product propositions for SMEs in the UK. So basically, this pool was for people who already had uh, a current account offering that needed, you know, jazzing up, people who wanted to launch an entirely new business proposition, or people who were looking to build, you know, products that go around the edge that enhance those um, SME business accounts. Um, earlier this year, we heard the winners of Pool A, who were Metro, Starling and Tide um, in partnership with ClearBank, and they were granted um, £280 million in the first round. Uh, you know, a couple of things to note on this one. Um, TSB pulled out last week, <laughs> which is cutting it fine, to say the least. Um, you know, rumours abound. Basically, rivals are saying it's because it didn't want to risk the embarrassment of losing out to much smaller banks again. I suspect we all have other thoughts on maybe why TSB had pulled out. Um at this point, it's kind of there's a lot of discussion going on. There's a lot of uh, rhetoric in some of the papers um, this week about the process being shambolic and time wasting. But I don't know how much that came from the people who didn't win. Um, so, thoughts on this? Who wants to go first? I'll wade in. I think, um, in terms of uh, challenges versus incumbents, I think there's a there's there's kind of an interesting point, which is um, given. I suppose the actual, given what you have to submit for this in terms of the, I suppose, the credentials that you need to go through, um, it's quite substantive to the point where you don't have a lot of time to actually do it. Therefore, how differentiated are the products actually going to be? So if you're actually putting a proposition across and there's one of X amount of uh, companies who are going for it, um, how differentiated the products going to be? Maybe not that much. So maybe they'll look at potentially other things, maybe more political things, maybe things like how much you're going to be able to match uh, what the BCR remedies will give you, which is 
pretty much what everyone who won in Pool A did. I think the um, BCR have been quite open that people who are willing to match are likely to, to do well. I don't think that that's hidden. Of all the, the murkiness that, the, that surrounds this process, and there is a lot of murkiness, and as somebody who's relatively neutral, <laughs> I mm. still haven't worked out, mm. that is kind of one thing that nobody's quibbling I think yeah but I mean I th- for me I think you know if you look at actually the variety of the three that won you know uh, Nationwide or a building society that's something a little bit new and they've got obviously a fantastic representation and serve at the moment many many businesses across the country uh, so you know you could make kind of a well it's an incumbent versus challenges thing but actually I think they've gone to three pretty stable companies um, so you know the question shouldn't be you know was it because of this but the question should be really well why wouldn't you give it to these three well, I was a little surprised not to see Monzo on the list. And I thought, well, maybe it's a compliment. Maybe the government thinks they've already got it sorted out. <laughs> but Monzo aren't doing business accounts so much at the moment, aren't they? That's, that that doesn't matter. This is if you want to do business accounts. And yeah. they have said they will. It is, it is in the in the roadmap, allegedly. I mean, I, I wonder if, you know, if they're make, making public statements about what they are going to do, whether it's imminent enough. If, if Monzo just wants to conquer the world, that's probably not certain enough for uh, this kind of funding. Maybe Monzo are holding out for the personal consumer market to to be strong enough that they don't have to move so much into the SME market because it does seem to me that one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of challenger banks really target the SME market is because they know that they're not actually making enough money or are likely to make enough money from the consumer market so maybe Monzo are just you know uh uh fronting it out and deciding we're going to stick with this and see how far we can go before we have to call in the SME card. Who knows? I mean, I think it's interesting because I I slightly disagree. I actually think that the current flurry in, um, you know, services we're seeing for SMEs are actually because the retail market is so saturated. Hmm. So if you look at how many propositions there are out there for consumers in the retail market, and they're not all banks, you know, if you look at the likes of money, it's been hugely successful, but you can effectively use monies as a bank, you know, What's going on on the back end? Consumers don't really care. They've just got a million customers. They're practically the second biggest of the new digital-only banks. So I kind of think that the SME thing is, the, the, the fact that we're seeing the proliferation, of course the cash is going to help. Of course somebody says you've got a chance to win millions of pounds, you're going to be like, oh, maybe we'll have a bash at that. And and I think that the spread of winners so far also means that people who are going in for pool C and D are going, well, it's anyone's game, so let, let's all have a bash at this. But I do think actually... Um, the SMEs, you know, the market is that fur- much further behind the consumer market anyway. I think this is more people going, you know, if you look at Tide and Clearbank, you look at Investec, they're, they're partly they don't want to lose out, but partly because the retail market is so saturated, they're not going to be able to compete at this point. Hmm. It's also a very easy extension. So most of the business or SME current accounts that have been launched are actually really similar to the retail current accounts. And that's because many new businesses are single owner, single employee um, types of startups. So if you have a great retail product, why not just extend it to SMEs Oh, and, and get some free funding from the government? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point as well because of the SME propositions we've seen from the digital-only challenges, if you like, they are pretty much all sole trader um, or, or you know limited to two, two director companies. And they will tell you that that is because they want to get their MVP right first, which is which is partly right because a lot of these are offering you know uh, much more complex services, you know, tax calculation, um, invoice, you know, invoice sending and, and management. 
And to be fair, that is a market that has not been well served up to this point by the mainstream banking sector. No, no, absolutely. Um, And I I think that's absolutely correct. But I think that what we now need to see is people going for that middle layer, the people going, well, you know, this 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 product, Starling for Business, is not enough for me, really, because I've got 50 employees and I need to hold more than £100,000 in my account because I'm not going to make payroll if I don't. But on the other hand... RBS don't look at me twice because I'm not making 50 million in turnover. So I actually think what what I would like to see is this money sort of moving up and serving that middle level, sort of between the sole the sole trader and the the um, you know two director companies to the sort of four or five director companies who've got 50 employees who are somewhere in the middle. And that's probably why you know these the waves of the two pools um, have come as they are. I mean the, the the challenger banks, forgive me for being cynical, are maybe the ones that get that get the hype and look at how competitive and differentiated this land landscape is becoming, um, but actually are the ones that are going to do the work and apply this capital, um, the ones that can serve, already equipped to serve those customers. Um, frankly, I'm amazed that it's taken so long to get to this point. Um, you know, we look back to where um, SMEs really stopped being served, and that was post-2008 crash. Um, but individual consumers are the ones that make the noise, therefore rightly, and I suppose we all are them, um, they're the ones that get served and get reacted to. Um, Obviously, going back to, I think it was around 2012, um, the likes of Funding Circle started, I mean, actually, probably a bit later, probably about 2014, um, the likes of Funding Circle started getting government funding to help um, provide loans to small businesses. Um, But that funding for the banks hasn't been there. Um, So fast forward 10 years, and we're finally starting to see some real competition being driven for small business lending, which is fantastic. And and I think you should point out there really is competition, because I was doing some research earlier. So Tide has, I think, and let me number these, around 80,000 accounts. Co-op has 90,000 small business current accounts. TSB only has 100 and something thousand. Mm -hmm. So the competition really is there. Now, you can say maybe people who have a co-op account also have a Tide account. And also maybe the people who are using the Tide accounts, those people who have previously been sole traders who use their PCA, like the personal current account, because an awful lot of sole traders haven't bothered with business accounts. Maybe that's where the transition is happening. But to your point, there is definitely competition in that market happening. I would like to see what the drop-offs are for the likes of Tide, though, because speaking to a few people who've opened Tide accounts, I haven't, but I know some who have, and um, they haven't been terribly impressed with the interface and they don't feel like it's that different from what you can get from from a traditional bank account as it is um so yeah i'll be interested to see whether that success is maintained for me as a business owner i think the real innovation within a business banking account would have to come around how it helps you do things more efficiently i think oftentimes in your personal life you're quite happy to be inefficient and yet different rules apply at work um and and for me you know i think budgeting um on a business level is going to be much more challenging to deliver from a user experience point of view than budgeting on a personal level yeah i think it, it goes back to uh, it goes back to how differentiated these propositions actually be from one another um and i uh, i mean for, from from my perspective i think if you look at um let's say nationwide who are obviously incredibly reputable, have got their own license, um, can leverage other services that they've currently got, have been awarded the top 
uh, amount in here and could probably do something very, very significant in that market versus if you look at what 15 million actually probably provides you, which is what the others have, have, have received, how far can you go with that if you consider their customer base and others? So like for me, it's like there's a, there's a level of investment which will dictate, and even if they match it, which will dictate how far you can go from a proposition perspective. But I do feel that sort of if you're outside of that top four, as in the three that won it in Pool A and Nationwide, you're at a natural disadvantage anyway because you're going to have to spend it in a certain way. There's obviously preconditions, which are all public, that you have to subscribe to. Um, and your proposition naturally, therefore, unless it's like specifically niche, but I don't think they've necessarily the time to develop specifically niche propositions. Um, I think you're, I think they'll find that the competition might eat them up. So, so I wonder if it's because um, it's, you know, both modernization and ancillary products. Actually, if you've got 30 million, you probably can bring in digital onboarding. So that probably is a modernization of an existing product. This is true. So I, I, do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Um, but speaking of Pool A, this is a beautiful segue into the next story, which is Metro's big short. Mm. So... Metrobank faces a shareholder revolt. So ISS, the prominent shareholder advisory and services group, has recommended investors reject Metrobank's pay report, which includes a £280,000 bonus for finance chief David Arden, which ISS deemed to be unwarranted given recent shareholder experience. In January, Metro disclosed a major accounting error where incorrect risk weighting was applied to £900 million worth of loans. And the result has been £4.5 billion wiped off Metro's market value. So basically that meant the Metro didn't have as much capital to balance those loans as it should have done. Um, To make matters worse, Metro has also faced a heavy bout of short selling, becoming the most shorted stock on the London market. Um, And one of the results of this has been this week the bank faced a run, as in something we haven't seen since Northern Rock, where several branches in West London had people queuing out the door to pull out their assets after uh, rumours spread on WhatsApp but the bank was trying to take control of customers' assets or you know, what was in their safety deposit boxes, which is actually a large part of Metro's market. Um, ISS apparently not the only one voicing these concerns. Shareholder advisory firm Glass-Lewis has issued similar recommendations. Oh, dear. Thoughts beyond oh, dear? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've just awarded them £100 million from the revenue stand and then this came out, I think it was about a week and a half or two weeks later, the first room, you're probably sitting there if you're on that committee thinking, oh, God. What have we done? Um, saying that, and I would I would reiterate this, is that the underlying results from 2018 for Metro Bank were unbelievably strong. So the group has grown. Uh, I mean, you only have to go onto their website and you get a list of, you know, profit before tax is up, uh, the amount of branches is up, increase of current accounts is up, et cetera, et cetera. So the underlying profitability of the company before this all happened was very, very strong. Um, saying that, it's, uh, it's probably the first time ever, I think, or correct me if I'm wrong, that a social media platform has forced a run on a bank. Mm. That's kind of a fun one. And it's what I love is that it's so regional. So it was just West London. So it's quite clearly somebody messaging their friends who message their friends who message their friends. It's it's fantastic to see the spread. I'd, I'd love to, I know WhatsApp doesn't let you, but I'd love to see the chain of messages, like where they started and how it went round. It's very worrying though, because when I saw that, I, I thought, well, actually we could have these um, micro contagions that could at a time of existing vulnerability for Metro Bank compound their difficulties and if it were to happen again on a slightly bigger scale you wonder you know where is the criminality there because surely if somebody is is spreading those false rumors on a social media platform that could really damage a business that are unfounded I mean obviously Metro is having its difficulties but there was no reason for that run um, then surely there has to be some criminality there. I mean of course the problem is with WhatsApp how do you work out where it started? 
You you can't it, trace it, it back. It's not like a newspaper report where you go, that was the person who did it yeah. or said it. Or, you know, it's not like, you know, go back to Elon Musk and his, mm. you know, announcements on Twitter and the SEC saying you can't do that. Exactly. That was very clearly where the problem started. But do we know if it was forwarded messages or, or, or groups on that? Because, you know, it, it's interesting thinking about this in terms of community and a lot of these sort of challenger banks and, and other uh, types of businesses that pride themselves on transparency and customer service and in Metro's case, dog bowls and biscuits and <laughs> doggy banking um you know it could be very likely that there was a metro bank pro whatsapp that suddenly turned nasty um so thinking about how community can affect these types of businesses and that inbuilt vulnerability and what was your strength um is something to you know take very seriously i don't know though because metro bank has always prided itself on on being so irl as opposed to digitally obsessed and i wonder whether in this case um that was its achilles heel because if it had that really strong online community that say a monzo has that that could have counteracted some of those rumors i don't know i mean sorry i was gonna say i don't know these runs on banks happen so quickly Mm. but it could have been literally 15 minutes and if somebody says to you you've got to go and get your money out now because metro are going to take it off you and you're never going to see it again then do you stop to check the community forum or does this person who sends you something you trust do you sprint (laughs) this is a problem with um, a lack of general financial education knowledge and awareness because uh, you know, if there was a genuine run on Metro Bank, we would be knowing, hearing about it in the news. And I think that it, it just goes to show how little people actually understand about the ma- the mainstream banking system, um, that that kind of rumour could pick up so quickly and spread like wildfire. It also makes me wonder, how are people going to run on digital-only banks? You know, what does a banking run on, you know, someone who doesn't have any branches actually look like? I wonder if it looks like what we saw when Monzo, the other way around, when it tried to crowdfund and its servers fell over. I wonder if it's the servers going over. I don't know, but that's just Well, the I can imagine level. the service and the branches was especially astounding on that day. <laughs> no, no, sorry, the um, servers as in like the, oh, the, the technology servers. behind it. The servers. That doesn't make as good a picture, right. though. <laughs> no, yeah. It's not one for the front pages, but yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> sorry, Roman, we interrupted you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think it makes me wonder how is this all going to evolve now that more and more banks are actually closing their branches and if physical presence gives consumers security, where is that security going to come from in the future? And I, and I think it should be pointed out as well, as I said, Metro, when, when other banks started withdrawing safety deposit boxes because the problems with fraud and complying with AML and KYC regulations, Metro Bank made that kind of one of the central pillars of their their business proposition, like we will hold your, your physical assets securely for you. Now, of course, that physicality then becomes the problem because if it's, you know, granny's diamond ring, that's even even worse than if it's your life savings. I don't know to a certain... Maybe not, but you see my point. I, mean, I, kind of, I kind of feel a little bit for Metro. I mean, they, they did announce that they need to raise £350 million. They put that on growth, so they didn't actually... It's not... Uh, it's seemingly not related to the RWA adjustment, etc. Um, I, I do sort of feel a little bit sorry that they did that. I don't know if they did that before or after this happened, or whether it was at the same time. That, unclear... But now, obviously, they're trying to raise in a market where their shares have just been hit by 9%. It's the most shorted stock on the market, et cetera, et cetera. You have to say that that is a serious series of unfortunate events happening sort of one after the other. I think... 
Sorry, I was just going to say that that what I take from this whole saga is that shareholders are flexing their muscles again and making a difference and having their say. And we've lost that connection between shareholder activism and complacent bank boards in the past. And Metro Bank, even if it, you know, um, is a continually ugly saga, at least we're seeing the reemergence of, of, of shareholder power. And I think that's a positive to take away from it. I do think when it comes to risk-weighted assets, getting a number like that wrong when you're a bank makes me wonder if someone forgot to hit shift F9, frankly, (laughs) and therefore that had an impact on the stock market. Um, Unless you have a clear explanation of why something like that went wrong, it's hard to have trust. And I don't think you will ever be able to get those clear explanations, unfortunately, because so much of banking is still manual. It literally, as you said, could be somebody mistyped a number in a box and then nobody picks up on it and it escalates. That genuinely happens. I know that's terrifying, but I've, we've seen that happen. Um, I mean, I I don't know where it's going to go. I think Metro probably, in my opinion, needs a change of leadership and that might help. There are other companies out there, in, in my opinion, in the financial services and fintech sectors who could do the change of leadership. And I think in Metro in particular, that would be interesting. We've seen, you know, heads roll at the likes of TSB when things go wrong. But given um, Metro is so much Vernon Hill's baby, I don't know if we, if that's as likely to happen. But that's a, that is a problem because we've had that leadership and that board in place for so long. And from what I've read about it, there has just been a, an awful lot of complacency and chumminess on that board. Mm. And, and I don't know whether that has directly led to its current problems. But generally speaking, having that lack of turnover and diversity and, and you know, spark and dynamism on a board surely is not a good thing. Well, let's hope for the best. Who fancies a trip to Hong Kong? Uh, So the next story is Hong Kong banking license wins. So Tencent, Alipay, I never get this right, Xiaomi, have won Hong Kong online banking licenses. So Hong Kong's banking regulator has issued four more digital banking licenses to units of those companies, um, also to a unit of Ping An, um, as well as a a joint venture involving Tencent, ICBC, and Hill House Capital. So this brings the total number of virtual banking licenses issued by the Hong Kong Monetary Authority this year to eight. So it's eight in six months. Um, the process was, of course, that they could apply over the last 18 months and, and the, the Hong Kong HKMA has been looking at them. It's not like they've just suddenly got a flurry and are making very quick decisions. But um, it's quite impressive to have eight new licensed ventures as banks in one territory in six months. A um, little bit more detail on these. So Ant SME Services is the unit of Alipay, uh, sorry, Ant Financial, which owns Alipay, uh, which has won the license. Um Infinium Limited is the name of that joint venture. Um, interestingly, there um, the ICBC is uh, a unit of Chinese banking giant, so and uh, also Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, and the executive vice chairman of New World Development. The point being, there's lots and lots of different players in there with fingers in many pies. Um, Insight FinTech HK um, is the joint venture between the smartphone maker, which holds 90%, and an independent investment bank. And Ping An One Connect um, is a unit of the Chinese insurance giant Ping An, which is actually like one of the largest insurers in the world. So uh, TLDR, huge technology players getting licenses 
in partnership with some very interesting other players. So not just banks, but, you know, luxury, luxury jewelers, uh, venture capitalists, uh, you know, um, estate, uh, I don't mean estate, property magnates. It's, it's, it's a very interesting mixture of people in my mind. And do we know what the banking, these online banking licenses are? Like that how are they That was my first different? thought. Just, I mean, why don't we have them? Well, they're just they're just licenses for banks that are, are literally digital. It's the way they've gone about doing what we did in the UK with our revised licensing program. It's just that they're actually more limited in um, in Hong Kong because you can, you can, can be online. You can accept deposits and you can issue loans, basically. But you, I think, previously you had to have a physical store or physical presence in order to do that, and now you don't. And that's basically. But things like regulatory capital and all that. I mean, do we know if that's equivalent? Because I mean, that really, even if your services are limited, that kind of change of capital requirements really upsets the competitive market. I believe it's very similar. Also, Um, consumers just don't distinguish between someone who has a virtual banking license and someone who has a full banking license. It's more about stimulating a a quite stagnant market. So as Adam said, the rule previously said you had to have a physical presence. So this is like lift taking away that weight and I guess rather than revising the existing regulatory regime they just thought we'll add we'll add another type of license into the mix I mean I must say you you are right to say that this is kind of what we've done in the UK we've seen it in other European countries we've seen other countries worldwide they've done a very very I don't know if this is by design or just you know by accident they've done a very good job of marketing the fact that there's these licenses going this year Um, and I suppose that sort of meets the wider ethos of the Hong Kong um, government at the moment which is to obviously you know um showcase itself as sort of the centerpiece of age and and it's working there's no doubt about it i think in terms of um, just coming back to that point of kind of the um uh, the multiple players sort of clubbing together to to, to do this um, i do think again it goes back to what i think would win in that in that region which is that kind of marketplace model um so you know you see a lot of interest not just from these guys but from taxi companies from the grabs etc of the world who want to move into other areas not just fi- in financial services but put that in adjacent to, uh, let's say, cab ride, you know, ca- uh, a, a cab solution, or put it in adjacent to a food delivery solution, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all about the marketplace. And if you've got eight banks which have just been issued a new license, who are all on about a timeline of about six to eight months to actually launch to market, can you imagine the competition it's going to be from those eight? It's going to be like staggering. So the more you've got in your armory from day one, the merrier. Actually, so who- Sorry. Who should be worried? Is it HSBC and Standard it's Chartered in those bank. markets? Well, Standard the- Chartered have been issued one. So they were one of the initial cohort who got a virtual license. So you can have a virtual license and an actual license. Yes, yes but don't ask me how that's worked. <laughs> you have a, you have a, I think it's a sub-brand. Because so, it, it just feels so, like, I get that it's very similar in terms of effect of what we're doing in the UK. But actually, there's a whole different angle on it. I mean, the, the angle in the, in the UK has been, we're opening up banking services to allow other providers. This is almost forcing the online you know in the UK it's, you can use online to deliver your services in the same way or for, for the same objective it seems this like is, an entirely separate regime yeah almost. well I, and will force other banks on which maybe is the objective and maybe that's great I actually think the more interesting angle here is the big banks in Hong Kong and China have been struggling for a while they don't need new competition I mean Ping An and you know Ali uh, elements of uh, sorry units of Ant and Tencent getting licenses is great and all but they've been handling most people's finances for a very long time like the reason that those marketplaces models did so well in China which is where they originated is because people in China did not have access to financial services of any sort so it didn't 
matter that they weren't technically banks. They all partnered with banks and there was a requirement from the Chinese government who tried to squash them and went, actually, this is a good thing. They cracked the whole financial inclusion piece. Absolutely. Mm. So um, I actually think that in Hong Kong, if I was an incumbent bank, I would be terrified because people have been wanting to use these services for a while in Hong Kong. And to me, it just shows that encroachment of these services. I, I don't think it actually fosters that much more competition because I think most people are already kind of using those services anyway in that part of the world. And I guess to your point on the in the in the previous section, like people probably don't really realise what the difference is. You yeah. know, well, a payments license versus a banking license to your average person yeah. using yeah. these services. The critical distinction is always deposit insurance from Mm -hmm. a consumer standpoint. So if they have equivalent deposit insurance, then it should be okay. Mm. Um, But if they don't, then I actually think it's something to be a little bit concerned about. I don't actually know the answer to that question, but we can definitely look it up. I I think, knowing Hong Kong, they probably do. Um, Because, you know, it's not going to be a problem for any of these guys to put the capital up, is it, to pay for a deposit insurance regime? Um, Yes, but I think that, you know letting a bank go down or experiencing a bank going down where there's no consumer backstop, um, that can often be a business decision. And if consumers aren't protected outside of the business decision, then you can get into a place where trust in financial services generally erodes. And and that can't be a good thing because, you know, people will be looking at these institutions and what they're doing in Asia and thinking, shall we be bringing some of this to Europe? Um, and if it looks like chaos, then, you know, we might not get it in Europe. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, depending on who you are. Um, but generally, if we can have a way of innovation working overseas and finding ways to import it here, I think it could be quite interesting. So I just looked at the, um, the rules. They actually do have to have at least one physical office to handle customer complaints as a requirement. Um, They must have an exit plan at the time of application for authorization to ensure they'll be able to unwind the business in an orderly manner if required. They're subject to prohibitions on minimum balance requirements and predatory practices, um, and they must be members of the deposit protection scheme. So they they are... fully you know backed up to and to, to the you know the rest of the the banks out there but I, I don't think that that's a surprise given as I said how much money these guys have got it's not like you're talking about Monzo who had you know five million in seed funding oh my god how are we get 50 million in capital um it'd be interesting market to watch actually they say about so this was a stat they said 15 billion which is 30 percent of the city's total banking revenue is up for grabs that is like the consensus across multiple commentators in the region that's a lot of money for eight banks that you're going to launch in about six, seven months. So, Any readover for the UK or Europe? I mean, should we be expecting more of these partnerships? I, I, to be honest, I've always said this when people say, oh, is, you know, Alipay or Tencent going to come to Europe or the UK? And, and this is just my opinion, but I have, I, my mind hasn't changed on this. I don't necessarily think we will because, as Iona very um, astutely pointed out, we we don't need them. Like we do, we do need. We have a problem with financial inclusion, absolutely, but we do not have a problem with there being services for people who do not have money or credit histories. We have those services. It's just getting them into the right hands. So I think that if you know, if and when, well, actually, Alipay is already here, and Tencent come to to um, Europe and the UK, and for that matter, America. It's for encouraging Chinese customers to be able to feel comfortable to spend money yes. abroad. Yes. Do not think they are coming for for, for Monzo. I, yeah. I just don't mm, think that's I true. I agree. Yeah. I think that's the um, and that's always I think been up to this point 
um, whether it was a stated strategy, but it's how the, their strategies has evolved, which is serve yeah, Chinese tourists who are over in the UK who can, for the UK's perspective, who can pay easier um, in the centre of town. And that has worked well, if you will, you know, that is clearly something which has worked. I think the interesting thing for, for those companies, especially the China-based companies are moving into Hong Kong, it does represent a geographic shift. So it does represent a new, you know, a new country to go into. And it's quite, a, it's probably the first time they've done that sort of wholeheartedly as in getting a licence and moving on. Um, whether or not you'll see that move beyond Asia is another question. And it may be, but it might take a long time. Well, also, would the UK and US regulators allow them to do so, particularly if you look at the relationship between the US and China? <laughs> yes, moment, possibly not in the US. Maybe, yeah. maybe not that far. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other, the other relevant thing for, for this is the uh, Hong Kong-UK fintech bridge that's being talked about quite a lot at the moment. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversations with China, with Malaysia and, and so on. But this Hong Kong one definitely seems to have legs. You know, Caesar's is involved in it transfer-wise involved in it, lots of other fintech businesses are taking a real um, uh, a, a real place uh, or opportunity to explore doing these kinds of things. So maybe the purpose of these businesses coming over to the UK and other parts of Europe isn't that clear, but certainly there'll be some learnings and some experience sharing. All right, well, uh, let's come back to the UK with our next story today, which is Brits don't back banking tech. So this is um, a report from Finextra on ING's latest banking survey. Um, so apparently Brits expect their banks to deliver the latest technology, but are less likely to rush to use it than some of their European counterparts. So according to this report from ING, 63% have never used fingerprint or voice recognition to log into their bank's app. Uh, nearly a third think that their lender is overambitious in introducing new services on different devices, saying they do not need or want more ways to interact. Um, standard of those who do use mobile banking services, they, they use them more. Um, conflicting uh, sorry they, they think they view their account balance more um conflicting views on expectation versus adoption maybe due to a lack of trust in technology um it does i i, I so that's come from for, for next i actually quibble that because most people think that two-factor authentication is the most secure method so they may think that facial recognition is secure but they also think 2fa is the most secure so there's a question there mm. um and interesting stat from kind of the whole survey 70 percent of europeans plus uh, US citizens and Australians, which may well skew that quite heavily, mm-hmm. um, still use their local bank branch. Do you know where the sample came from for this survey? Because all over Europe... I just find it really hard to believe. So Agreed. There's, um, <laughs> maybe we're just caught in this London fintech bubble and have no idea how the rest of the world I'm, lives. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued as to why you think that, because this doesn't surprise me one bit. Um, I think that people, um, even those that, that say that they want to embrace tech, um, in, in actual fact you know people are very slow to be, to change their behavior when it comes to banking 63% have never used fingerprint or voice recognition so my new phone is a google pixel and i cannot use fingerprint to log in to first direct it's not an option they have not built that option into the app for that phone so mm. is that then an unfair stat because if you're not physically i mean because i yeah. can yeah. log into my starling app with my with my thumb but i yeah. can't log into my I, barclays with my thumb yeah, i so completely agree with your point on the numbers of, of, of the uh, <laughs> and actually, banks that could offer it then that would be yeah. a reliable stat and exactly. maybe ask a thousand people in each market right 
I also so think somebody who loves their stats, like <laughs> people in each market, 63% of the people who had heard of it could access it. You get quite narrow. Yeah. It feels like the questions were a little bit strange. I mean, if you ask people, you know, whether they want to spend more time interacting with their bank, I don't think anyone <laughs> yes. wants to spend more time yes. interacting with their bank. It's just when you need it, how easy is it? Um, so I do think there may be a little bit of bias in the way that the questions were phrased. I think, you know, some of that stuff is kind of, uh, I think... The, the question as well have moved away from that. So this survey happens every year and I think that they've started to move away from that and towards things which are which are possibly more interesting about, you know, open data, PSD2. Um, so, you know, the question, this question is phrased, in some parts of the world it's possible for financial providers to access your financial information held by other companies. Were you aware they could do this? So there's kind of like an awareness. Um, and, you know, no, is what's always interesting about this survey is that Turkey, the citizens in Turkey are always like, yes, we do everything, we love everything, we want everything. They're just incredibly optimistic. So there's some cultural bias in there yes. as well. Yes. Um, but, you know, would you be happy for, co- for companies to share your information in this way if you gave consent? Again, the way that question is phrased, no is very high. Mm. Well, of course. Except in it Austria and Germany. But it doesn't tell you the benefit. <laughs> Which is counterintuitive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so my point being that I think this survey is interesting. They're trying to do more, they're trying to move more into kind of open banking, the PST2, and also, to a certain extent, they're talking about would you be happy for computer programs to make decisions on your behalf, whether that's investing or advising your spending. Again, the phrasing of the question yeah. sounds <laughs> like someone is playing a video game with your money, uh, yeah. <laughs> which I mean, is I'll, not I'll, the case. I'll make, I'll make two points. It's, one is on another stat which they asked, which is, and this was the result that they got from asking the question, that 64% of people say that they would not be happy to use open banking uh, that doesn't even make sense as a question because open banking isn't a thing that you can use it's no like, because I, I dare say the 64% don't even know what open banking is that's, that's been extra phrasing that's not what the question it was it sounds like opening oh, right, up okay, your bank right, account right I see I see, I see. So <laughs> the other thing just to I, I think that there is a slightly negative connotation on uh, how this has been reported but actually fundamentally ING did the questions ING own Yelp so they are well sort of is well within their interest to make these results as good as possible I guess from an adoption perspective so I wonder how much they've just sort of given a very sort of generic set of results to media companies and then the media companies have taken it and actually put a spin on it which isn't particularly great. As a journalist as well you always have to oh, yes, be wary <laughs> of, of yeah. any company that uses research and then says a third think this or a quarter think that because then in my mind I just think well that means everybody else <laughs> is is on the other side of the fence so for instance nearly a third think that their lender is over ambitious in introducing new services on different devices. Well, that means the two-thirds don't think that at all. And they're perfectly happy for their banks to be trying out new options and to be giving them more choices. I, th- I think the point here we have to make as well is that Finextra, I've looked at the original survey and Finextra has taken a particular angle on this. And if you go back and look at the original survey, it is perhaps less uh, badly phrased and skewed mm-hmm. than you might think. Right. I think what's happened, having been a journalist in my time, <laughs> sometimes you have to make the best of what you've got. Um, and sometimes, so true. Sometimes that is, yes, you know this about I know. Sometimes you have to use the data and sort of make it fit a story. Um, it's It's interesting. I mean, I think... My my question, I think the group agrees here, is that what's the value of these surveys anymore? Like, this is not well-constructed necessarily. It's not necessarily a very big sample. It does feel like, as we've said, it's meeting ING's ends rather than sort of a, a, you know, a scientific study. I will, I will make one comment, which is it, it does indicate that people want choice, but then also control. So, you know, I want as many services in my banking app as possible, but I only will use certain bits of it. And I think that, that speaks back to what customers' jobs are when they're 
looking at propositions and looking at what banks that um, that they want to want want to use. Um, I want everything, but actually, then I also want the control to use nothing. Can I? Yes, uh, that's kind of interesting. Can I just read one of the options on the question, which was you you're going to completely blow me out? No, no, I'm, no, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely <laughs> ready. When it comes to services offered on my devices, my main bank is too conservative, over ambitious. I don't care. And in the wow. UK, the biggest bracket. In fact, most countries, it's. I don't know or care. No. Yeah. Stop asking me these questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, would you recommend this service to somebody else and it's the most pointless service ever? And you're thinking, no, of course I wouldn't because I don't talk about these things with my friends. Exactly. So to your point, Adam, it's completely like, I do want control, yes. I want my money to be safe, yes. I want choice, yes. But when it comes to like, have I counted how many ways I can make a deposit with my bank? No. Mm. And, and also, I just think that any research that's based on consumers and, and what they think of their banking services, it's, it's so unreliable and, tan- and, and intangible, you know. It depends on, you know, the time of day that you ask them, the mood that they're in, you know, and what kind of sample that you have. Um, because, yeah, people are very, very fickle and contradictory when it comes to banking. Like Adam says, you know, they want everything, but they'll actually only end up using a tiny percentage of what they're offered. Or they say they want something and then they end up, you know, using something totally different. Totally, because we're human beings. And let's be honest, <laughs> people only care about brand at the moment. Mm. If, as long as you've got a coral card, then Absolutely. you're cool. I mean, I trialed, I, I had my Monzo and my Starling and my Revolut card that I was just carrying around for months and months. And I gave myself a trial. I said, I'll do a month with one, a month with another. And genuinely, I didn't use any different services on each of the three. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, there we go. Um, interesting, interesting to interesting survey analysis, shall we say, rather than interesting data there. Um, and on that note, we're going to take a break, but we're back very shortly. This deal sets apart to a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Clearly the pressure is beginning. British jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting... Listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dock. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs, understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000 strong client base with your apps, and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution, because after all, we're all innovators. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. The team will be in Amsterdam at the start of June for Money 2020 Europe. Catch our very own David Breer, Jason Bates and Lida Glyptis all doing keynotes on the big stages and we're bringing back the FN debate. Joined by the great and the good in the banking and fintech spaces, we'll be debating how you can win in today's banking battlefield. Catch that on day one at 5.20pm on the Innovation Catalysis stage. 
And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be hosting Blockchain Insider Live, as well as a series of interviews and the FinTech Insider news show from our stand on the expo floor. Come and see us there. And if you haven't got tickets, we've got you covered. Use discount code M1911FS to get reduced price tickets and we'll see you in Amsterdam. That's M1911FS. All right, let's get on with the show. So our next story is that UK fintech investment keeps on growing. Um, So this is a story uh, from Finextra that SoftBank's Vision Fund is apparently going to invest $800 million in a UK fintech. So um, the fintech in question is called Greensill, which is a UK-based supplier of alternative supply chain finance. Um, And if this goes ahead, it would double the company's valuation to $3.5 billion. The deal will give SoftBank a 15 to 20% stake in the company, which was founded uh, only eight years ago. Um, so supply chain finance involves suppliers selling their invoices, uh, sometimes called receivables, to a financial institution at a lower price than the amount owed, basically in order to get paid quicker. Um, the buyer, or the person who was supposed to pay the invoice in the first place, usually gets to dictate better terms as the result of them being paid faster. Um, it's not particularly sexy area of fintech, but my goodness, is it important. Um, this company, just as a fun fact, counts uh, former UK Prime Minister David Cameron as one of its advisors. He just happened to be a mate of the guy who founded the company, which might have something to do with it. Um, apparently, the new funding is expected to be used to accelerate green sales expansion into new markets in Brazil, China and India. Really interesting markets. Um, and the development of new technologies. Thoughts? I love it. I think um, the, the whole point around, I mean, I'm talking about working capital finance rather than the actual story itself. But um, I love the fact that, that this is essentially an industry which is uh, which is born out of the inefficiencies of processes, which is basically what it is. It's like uh, we've got a 30 day pay cycle, a 60 day pay cycle. And it's just that's just the way it is. Um, and I know a lot of people with sort of small businesses who are supplied to big businesses who get held at ransom um, and something like this. Um, whether or not you're talking about business to small business or large business to large business or whatever it might be, I think it's actually the um, the value of it is incredibly high, incredibly high. And I think that's why those markets are so interesting. India, Brazil, China, how many small businesses, or, you know, startups are in those parts of the world that big banks won't even look at twice or even, you know, how many, um, you know, innovative finance companies are there targeting the small businesses in those spaces or large businesses, but like the small business thing is what instantly comes to mind. It sounds good. I think the only thing I'd want to know is what is the interest rate um, that you are implicitly paying? Because this feels like a loan. It doesn't sound like there's an APR. (laughs) Um, So the way it works is basically the bank agrees to buy. So say your invoice is £100. The bank says we'll buy that off you for £90. um, And Greensill facilitates that transaction. And it's usually um, a set amount depending on the value of the invoice in question. Yeah, so I, and I think at ninety pounds on a hundred, if you get it thirty days early, doesn't sound too bad. But if it's sixty pounds on a hundred and you get it, you know, ten days early, then it doesn't sound as good. So I'd I'd want to know, you know, what does the entrepreneur get? effectively on the, on the other side. Clearly, people seem to like it. But then again, everyone like payday lending as well. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think supply chain finance, as, as um, certainly in the UK and the States, is quite an established process. So I, I, I imagine there are set rates, but it's a very good question. I don't actually know the answer. I know that a lot of companies like it an awful lot. Um, the sort of the... the, the 
closest equivalent I can think of that maybe the UK fintech might have heard of is market invoice. Mm. Um, if you, cause they, they do sort of a, a very similar thing where they take your invoice, they sell it to another company and then you get what's left. And I think, to, I might be wrong, but they used to have like a bidding. Mm. It used it's to be, almost like a crowdfunding component yeah. of yeah. it, isn't it? You can, you can actually invest in that, which I think is, is really interesting because you're both serving the entrepreneur and the small business, but you're also giving people other than Green Soul & Co the opportunity to take advantage of that almost almost an investment asset yeah so i think as an area of finance it's woefully undeveloped and i think it has huge potential um i don't know this company very well has anybody else heard of them before today no, no. no. nope despite david cameron's uh, involvement who, who would have thought it <laughs> well he's not exactly man of the moment is he <laughs> <laughs> um interesting though it does say the company had attracted controversy this is greensill um in when it loaned a corporate jet to a fund manager at Swiss firm GAM, and that fund manager was later dismissed. Uh, I think one concern that I have is that there could be an awful lot of complexity built up within the system, and I can just imagine there suddenly being... um, a scandal where all these invoices um, have built up um, on these terms that, that Romy talked about. Um, and it was done perhaps away from too much scrutiny and too much accountability because it's quite... It feels uh, really opaque. It feels very opaque. And, and, and it doesn't feel like there is that much transparency in that market at the moment. I don't want to speak ill of it too much because I am, as a small business, grateful for anything that facilitates the payment of invoices. Um, having said that, I, I would hope that with the growth of the market will come suitably strong regulation to make sure that it's you know not getting too opaque and i think that's you know you're talking about market invoice earlier it's a it's a great service it's an alternative and i think anything that is an alternative to the status quo is a good thing um but that investing in invoice factoring isn't actually a regulated service anyway um so if you look at that as you say sort of going to scale Mm that does become a little bit concerning. Um, it's fine when it's touchable and you can see exactly what you're lending to or, 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 or the, the invoice that you're factoring. Um, but when you start to look at things like securitizing any potential uh, return coming back from those, you can see how it gets a bit murky. Yeah, and, and it sounds paranoid to say that, but then I don't think a lot of people would have anticipated the problems with uh, peer-to-peer lending that we've seen in recent times and yet they have transpired so I think you do have to be somewhat paranoid about these things yeah I mean I, I think the the point to be made out here particularly is the scale I think they've already done 60 billion dollars in financing so it, it, you know whilst we're talking quite a lot about small businesses I think actually this is large amounts going to large firms um, and I wanted to go back to Adam's point about you know uh, and to my point about the countries they're expanding into uh, you're talking about processes India China Brazil not necessarily known for the processes which are going to be easily understood by Western financiers who maybe want to break into that market so if you're a Western bank and you want to start providing these services in China and Brazil than maybe having a company that has the processes set up and in place that you understand is a good way to move to move that way. Um, what makes it fintech though? Um, because what it does is it automates a lot of the processes and it kind of, I think, I believe that's right. They're going to invest a lot of the money in the technology, but as far as I understand supply chain finance, I don't know if I'm wrong, is, is the use of technology to facilitate the movement of money much faster than the traditional kind of like literally waiting for either waiting for them to literally pay you or traditional invoice financing where you go to right, the bank. Right, so it, it is done s- online. It's, the, it's yeah. the accumulation of the the volume of the invoices, the ease of moving those invoices, and then the quickness of being paid at the other side. And that's what's being sped up more and more by new tech. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the, the, well, probably not vague, but that is the link back to the tech in fin. Agents yeah. of technolo- technological disruption. Yeah. Is that what, that's what they call so themselves. They're, they're heralded, yeah. Oh, there you go. 
The um, yeah, so it's well, whatever story. that means. <laughs> yeah, whenever I think of Agent, I think of The Matrix. Yeah, so it's always just seen the latest Marvel movie and has decided to put that in there. Yeah, I was thinking of Secret Squirrel actually. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Different let's... connotations for yeah. different people. Let's just say that eight hundred million dollar investment in a new UK unicorn because it's what three point five billion dollars. It's not to be sniffed at. That's pretty easy. Yeah, and, and SoftBank, I mean, they have a lot of money, but they don't just throw it around. They've just refused. We work at a second uh, round at, the, at the, the level to which they wanted. So um, they, they are, you know, the people, SoftBank gets, I think, a reputation for just throwing money at things, but I actually do think they make sensible choices a lot of the time. <laughs> um, all right, let's go to Silicon Valley next with Silicon Valley's newest stock exchange. So the SEC has approved a new Silicon Valley stock exchange backed by Mark Andreessen and other tech heavyweights. So the US government on Friday approved the formation of the new Silicon Valley stock exchange following regulatory criticism late last year. Backed by top value figures such as uh, aforementioned Mark Andreessen, the long-term stock exchange was born out of concern from the nation's tech elite who were frustrated about the public market's focus on near-term profit. So its mission is to create a market that reduces short-term pressures and encourages a steady cycle of innovation and investment in long-term value creation and would benefit companies and their investors alike. Uh, Firms listed on the exchange may also be required to abide by certain rules, uh, for example, a ban on tying executive pay to the company's short-term financial performance. Um, Prior filings apparently also indicated that a key aspect of the exchange would include scaled voting power. So basically, the longer the investor holds a stake in the company, the greater their their power gets. I mean, I I I can think of both pros and cons for this, actually. Can I just say how... So researching this story, uh, because one of the things we were asked before was how easy is it to set up a new stock exchange? And I think the answer to that, having done a little bit of research, is it's actually quite easy. <laughs> um, but then you can kind of call it exchange anything, because you can kind yeah. of, obviously, like crowdfunding in theory is exchange. Anything where you've got sort of an aggregation, I guess, of, of, of two sides of a transaction is, in theory, an exchange of some sort. But obviously, this has got the kind of the, the, the finance overlay. The heavyweight backing. Be, yeah, mm. it needs to be regulated and whatever else. But it's actually, it's really not that difficult. Um, that was my first thought. You're planning uh, on it then, Adam? Pardon? You're planning on it? Well, I, I only really researched it yeah, this week, but maybe, you know. <laughs> well, I have to say, well, I've got some sort of recent ex- experience of this because we, um, we, we set up a, a secondary market uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and the challenge is, is not the exchange itself. The exchange is the easy bit. It's the participants in the market. Uh, so if you've got, you know, your um, uh, business that you, you're encouraging to list or to put its shares for sale in, in some way, shape or form, it's actually the level of engagement and disclosure and compliance with rules and making sure that's where all the heavyweight involvement goes, both in terms of the company's resource and the exchange's resource. So, so setting it, it up, probably quite easy. Making it work, uh, especially with rules like this that are coming in. And making More it tricky. work legally yeah. with the SEC going, you know, like, we're going to keep a hawker mm. on you because you're new. I have to say the first thing I thought when I heard about this was, oh, no, an exchange where lots of loss-making companies <laughs> yeah. are going to go and use this forever with poor consumers funding the bill. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. When I said I can see negatives, I was like, well, this is because, you know, those venture capitalists who poured money into companies that are not profit-making and have, you know... Uh, uh, I was going to say overly scaled, that's not a term, but who have, you know, grown exponentially but without making any money, you know, I wondered if, like, the people who put them, the VCs in the first place who are now involved in the stock exchange want to offload, you know, their investment without giving exactly them return. That's exactly 
what it sounds like. It's part of a big publicity exercise, essentially. Yeah. Well, do you know what I love about this? Is that there's a bit of Elon Musk in in this, I think. And um, the the guy that's running the thing, the CEO, is Eric Ries, the writer of the who wrote the Lean Startup, and he talked about this kind of exchange in the book, and he's now putting his copious amounts of money where his mouth is and so now you've got all these businesses that are going on the exchange in the lean startup methodology and I kind of think as much as as a small business owners um, subscribe to that there's a place for grown-up businesses and for startup businesses and this is a merge of the two so we'll see I just love it like they get you get accused over and over again of not making enough money um, not hitting short-term targets etc and you and just in response to that you're like sod it We'll just list, list on a yeah. new exchange, which I'll just set up, and everyone's a winner. Yeah. And that's it. Market, marketing heaven. I think it's it's problematic to create this two-tier market instead of actually trying to integrate some of these principles more fully into the companies that dominate, you know, the US stock markets. I mean, you know, my limited experience in the UK um, was being involved with an investment trust a few years ago that had exactly this mission to try to focus on the long term, to, you know, put forward this whole new investment philosophy that wasn't tied to short-term profit. And it didn't raise enough money. It did not get the support that it needed from from the market in order to get off the ground, um, which was really disappointing, but not surprising to me. So I think that creating this two-tier market won't work in the US. You've actually got to have, you know, those more mainstream companies wanting to make those changes and and integrate them more fully into their investment process. And I think shareholders do go for that. I mean, shareholders do believe in long-term value if a long-term value creation strategy can be communicated. But I think telling shareholders we're going to run losses for as long as we feel like it because we're being long-term... That's what doesn't work. Yeah, and I think this this sort of exchange would, in some part, encourage that. So you, I mean, you've already heard it. I think, was it Uber or Lyft? It was one of the two. I think it was Uber who basically turned around and said, like, we're, we're just not changing our business model and we could be loss-making forever. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a little bit. So, mm. so how much, and that was kind of like, everyone's just t- turned around and was like, what? Uh, but but this kind of exchange in a place where you can actually house that kind of thought actually then encourages it. And uh, as you said, like, for, from a, uh, for a consumer investor, like, how uh, that is just not the message that you want to put on somebody's hard-earned savings if they want to invest in a company. It doesn't do anything, I think, to educate um, investors about the importance of long-term investing either, you know? Um, like I say, if it, if, if it was being promoted, um, you know, more in a more holistic way across the market um, and it was accompanied by a meaningful education drive, then maybe it could work. But if it's not accompanied by education, then nothing will change. All right, let's, let's chalk this one up to, we'll see. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Who wants to have some fun? All right, next one is from Business Money and this is our and finally story. Decoding the dough. Do you know your Lady Godiva from your lolly? <laughs> so, money is a universal language, but new research has found that seven in ten Brits, and then it says seventy percent in bracket, in case you know your maths is that bad, um, aren't sure what the different slang terms for it actually mean. Um, so, most popular slang term for money. Uh, would you have said notes at 51%? No. Because no. the next one is dosh, 48%. I would have gone dosh. Have gone dosh. Yeah. Um, and then you've got things in there like dough, bob, wad, bucks, lolly. The one that's least popular or least widely known is apparently score, 18%, which has a very different meaning. Right, smack, me. Smackers came yeah, in Yeah, score 70. and smackers both sound really rude. Smackers yeah. is great. I feel comfortable using that. Um, <laughs> 15 smackers. <laughs> has, anybody, has anybody around the table heard this one before? Rhino? Never. No. 
Apparently, it's uh, chosen by 49% of Brits. This is as the most confusing slang word for money. Nobody really knows what it means. It just, <laughs> it just kind of apparently means something valuable. And there's some fabulous sort of tale here that says, no one knows for sure where this 400-year-old term for money comes from. Some people link it to the value of rhino horn, um, the idea of paying through the nose. Perhaps the arrival of the first rhino in Britain suggested the sense of something valuable. Wow, that's a really bang-up-to-date reference. I though. quite like it, though. I might just start saying, that's rhino. And, and the people that found this confusing, the 49% or however many of, of, of Brits, did they know this word before? Is this 49% of people that had heard of it? Because I, I, this is furthest from my day-to-day language that I can even think of. What about Pavarotti? Yeah, probably that one as well. That's yeah. copy rhyming people. Yeah, that, that's a London one. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, uh, yeah. Pavarotti is um, from the famous tenor. So it's You've got to really know your classical music there, though. Yeah. You know, that's next level. Um, marigold. Pass. Uh, once denoted any golden coin. Um, marigolds are golden in colour. Um, but it's now more specifically used for the sum of a million pounds. That would be hilarious if you used that now, though. I will pay you one marigold. <laughs> <laughs> um, Commodore. What? This is the most... I think this Sounds is the like cleverest. an airline. The result <laughs> of... Commodores. The band. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't think so, but there is... Well, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yes, Commod- the Commodore's the band. Um, the result of a complicated and clever bit of rhyming wordplay for £15, right? Cockney rhyming slang for a fiver is Lady Godiva, and the group for the group, the Commodores are best known for their song, Three Times a Lady. That is the most torturous Ooh. thing I have ever seen in my life. Just as a pause, does anybody think they may have gone and found, like, um, a Guy Ritchie film and pulled these slang terms <laughs> from that? Because it sounds like from Lock, Stock and Smoking Barrels, something that, you know, Ray Winston may have I mean, once sp- said. Sp- speaking of, I mean, we spoke a lot of surveys on this show already, but, uh, yeah, this sounds like it was conducted pretty much in the East End. Um, <laughs> I mean, in the 1940s. To give you you kind of a a sort of um, a more sensible uh, comment here, if you like, Um, 30% of people believe the evolution of money and payments over the past 10 years has impacted the words they use every day. So ping me money. Like ping. Mm. ping. Yeah. If I said to you, like, ping me that, you would either say, oh, that means I send you an email, or if I was like, oh, ping me afterwards for lunch, you would know I meant please send me the money. Mm. Um, So Susie Dent, who, do you guys know Susie Dent? Countdown. Yeah, mm. she's the lady who knows all the words in Dixon's Corner. <laughs> she's amazing. Um, but she said, new technology has certainly accelerated the speed at which slang moves on, and slang was already the fastest moving area of language. So almost half the adult population finds discussing the subject of money difficult, and slang words help us to navigate these conversations by making us feel more comfortable and confident. And you see that in a lot of other areas. A lot of people talk about health, you use slang, or particular body parts, you use slang. Again, it's kind of it's, it's a subject that you're slightly nervous about. So I don't think maybe we should be surprised. There are so many different words. And this is the holy grail for a proposition right that you can actually you can make your proposition part of a like colloquial sentence so you know i want to get a cab i'll just uber it yeah yes. that's that's um, like for any proposition um that is like literally the holy grail but only, only a certain few will i think all of these standards. give you know these words give hope to new startup founders who are searching for that elusive dot com well the one i wanted to read out actually exactly does that is cabbage Mm. So there's a lending startup in the US and actually that white labels a lot of um, lending services in Europe called Cabbage. Cabbage is apparently 
the color of money in the States because money is green. Mm. So that actually, there actually is a link there to a fintech and one of these slang terms. I don't imagine that people would understand cabbage in the UK because I can't think of any green. Notes. Well, that's it. There's a lot of regional differences as well because I think if this study was um, conducted in the US, then Benjamins would be like a really common term. Mm. Um, and then, of course, making it rain has just spread so much in the last few years. Uh, and that comes from hip hop videos. I love being creative with the language around money and I find it a continual challenge writing a blog about money trying to find new words to describe being good with money and trying to keep it fresh and up to date um, so I'm all for being creative but some of these suggestions are really tortuous so I won't I, be seeing Commodore in your next blog you know what you might set me a challenge there I'll see if I can somehow get it in and if people get it then they get a prize I look forward to it yeah alright um, let's wrap up this week's new show so thank you so much to all our guests where can people find out more about you, Karen? Cedars.com. Uh, um, anyone can get me there. Uh, or my Twitter handle is at Karen Cedars. Perfect. Remy? Pensionb.com. If you're looking for a new online pension provider, that's where we are. Brilliant. Um, Iona? Um, I'm at youngmoneyblog.co.uk and you can find me on Twitter at Iona Young Money. So come and say hello. Set you a new challenge. I'll yeah. New yeah. words for new <laughs> slang words to get into your blogs. Adam, how about you? Uh, Twitter handles AdamD8 and 11FS.com. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky or hosting our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider. So if you haven't checked it out, please do go and find it. Um, what do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11FS.com. And don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. Thanks to those that have done so already. We really love to read them. Um, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Periscope for more content, including Fintech Insider on air and our new show um, run by my team showcasing pulse which is called home screen so thank you so much for listening have a good evening goodbye